Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 and 12. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, please soften our hearts to receive your word. Please guide each of us into all truth. Please bless and use my words to be true and accurate to your purposes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I've become acquainted with um, this feeling in the room right now. (laughs) When the lectionary, which we don't pick which scriptures to preach on in the Anglican Church, the whole witness of scripture, as St. Paul would call it in Acts, the whole counsel of God is served up meal by meal, Sunday after Sunday, the lectionary. And some scripture passages are like, mmm, yum. And then others are like, whoa, what just got put on the plate? And then doubly, when you hear that I have decided to pick that thing to preach on. Um, but I um, want, just want to rest your minds at ease ahead of time. I'm not going to say anything crazy this morning. And I think also, at least as I see in my own heart, there's a sometimes, maybe not even consciously acknowledged, but sometimes we have this sense about the Bible that there's lots of really good bits, and there's a few bits in it that we're like, maybe it wouldn't be too strong to say embarrassed that are in there. And maybe even a feeling of hesitation of, is this just some like cultural thing that kind of got accidentally slipped into the pages and we need to sort of like just, you know, almost wishing it wasn't there. Um, to say explicitly what maybe has sort of lain beneath the surface, that's not true. There's, no, there's not a word in the Bible that sort of like got in by accident. And it's like, well, that, those couple of verses, you know, we're not sure. We can be sure about every verse. Every verse is breathed out by God and useful for instruction and true. And God designed, even as Jesus spoke about the scriptures, not even sort of the mark of a letter will fade away. Um, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word will not. So I think it's um, especially true when we encounter a passage like First Timothy 2, um, verse 11 and 12, um, that we sort of recognize that fact, like this isn't an accidental passage. It's here for a purpose. And all the more so when we, it sticks out to our ears, it's like, wait, what did the Bible just say? That's a mark of sort of the, the cultural mindset we inhabit has sort of gone astray from the scriptures by instinct. And so the scripture is here as our permanent norm forever. And the whatever ways culture can mess up, and it messes up in all kinds of ways, right? Whether it's the really gross patriarchalism of ancient Rome, or some of the sort of gender confusion of our own day, like these things come and go, but the word of the Lord stays true forever. It's our, biblical scholars like the phrase, our norming norm. We keep reading it, so it keeps drawing us back to God's truth, regardless of what cultural footing we find ourselves on as we approach it. So um, one of the things that has been on my mind lately is the first part of our vision statement as a parish about keeping the ancient faith. And so the ancient faith is embodied in the church and the ancient practice. It is the case that from the apostles' time in the first century, through to 1974, so 1,944 years of unbroken witness, the church only understood 
men to be eligible for the office of priest, bishop, bishop, priest, and deacon. And that has been the way in which the great tradition has handed down to us, what does this scripture mean? Um, St. John Chrysostom sort of interprets the phrase as to teach authoritatively as a sort of summary judgment of the, what is um, permitted only for men in the church. And the way that that's been embodied in lived church life is only men until 1974 were eligible for bishop, priest, or deacon. So this is just a teaching point, a cardinal takeaway from the passage. Um, and I say this just to say that it's intentional that we have men in holy orders here at Good Shepherd. It's not just some circumstance, like, oh, it just happened to be that way by random. Corollary to this, having a really clear boundary, as Anglicans do, between ordained ministry and lay ministry, and these things are really important to distinguish, that I think sometimes in our mind we think of just only ordination and ministry as the synonyms, but all of God's people are called to ministry. That's the great text in Ephesians, right? To equip the people, the saints of God, which is all of you, all of us, for the work of ministry. So ordained ministry is just a subset within ministry to which we are all called. And so, and you know, lay is just the Anglicans love the old-fashioned words. That's just the way to distinguish from the rest of the circle that's not in holy orders. So having a really clear boundary from the tradition means that we actually have great liberty in the rest of church practice that apart from holy orders, bishop, priest, and deacon, um, every other ministry is open to all the people of God. And it would actually be a violation of the other scriptural principle, Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. So the way which Good Shepherd is structured isn't just some thoughtless thing. It's in, it's seeking to carry on the great traditional interpretation of the scriptures, that readers and acolytes and vestry persons, um, senior warden, that all the ministries of the church which are carried out in the body, pastoring each other, hospitality, there's all other gifts I should have better memorized from the scriptures, but these ministries are open to men and women. Men and women are actually called into them concretely. Uh, also including teaching in non-liturgical contexts. You don't have to be ordained to lead a Bible study. You don't have to be ordained to lead a small group. Men and women all called to these ministries. So let me just dig a little bit more into the passage. So the twin teaching of 1 Timothy 2.12, women are called to learn but not teach authoritatively. Now all Christians are called to learn but what's wonderful is that Paul underscores this against a sort of patriarchal backdrop of his day, which would have had the inclination to say, well, you know, the, the, the Jewish rabbinical schools, that was just for men. So Paul's saying, no, no, all Christians, men and women, are called to learn of God, to become theologians. And the ancient sense of that word wasn't getting a PhD in theology. It was knowing God personally and directly through prayer and the study of the scriptures. And so Paul's actually sort of safeguarding, actually, like this is not, in his day, that was a male. They would have intuited that was maybe just for men. Paul's saying, no, no, let a woman learn. And actually, let is not strong enough. In the Greek, it's actually a command. But we don't have a third person imperative in English. So it's really tricky to render. So let, imperative, yeah, um, let a woman learn. So men and women have the same spiritual calling to be theologians. We just have also different liturgical roles. 
different liturgical roles, different functions when the congregation, the church, assembles together. And part of the meaning for this, why it's not just some um, uh, cultural piece or something, is that the Holy Spirit, because God made us, he knows how, how we learn and how we receive communication. And some of it's explicit when we just hear didactic teaching. But a lot of it is also just sort of what patterns are we involved in? What symbols do we participate in? Right? We, we all have an instinctual regard for the American flag because we have these patterns of standing for the pledge and all these things, right? Same thing with the liturgy, that stemming from the arch symbol that Christ himself gave us, the sacrament. And he gave us bread and says, this is my body. And of course, in the sacrament, it becomes a vehicle of conveying to us his own heavenly body. But it also is a compound, multi-layered symbol, right? Paul would point out that, look, it's one loaf, just as we are one. That's the Spirit speaking through him in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, And then later theologians would even tease out, look how bread is made. You take lots of individual grains of wheat and you grind it up and then it makes one loaf. What a picture for the body of Christ. We who are seeking to have our flesh crucified with him, being ground up together, making one body. So the the layers of symbolism that are sort of layering into our own, the formation of our souls, we're not even always consciously aware. Same thing with that he gave wine to be the symbol of his blood. He has a cup to drink from, a common cup. The symbolism of that. I'll never forget when I grew up in a church where um, we all had like the little individual cups. And on vacation one time in Cornwall in England, we went to some church and they had a common cup. It was so startling. Like, we're all drinking from the same cup. Like, the sense of the unity of that. That was intentional when Christ gave us that symbol. I'm not saying it's not communion if you use little cups, but the symbolism is not as good and not, I think, what the Lord intended. So we learn mysteries about God and about the sort of very structure of the universe through our participation in the liturgy and the different liturgical roles that we see playing out. And that's part of the, I think, I believe, the reason why we have this specific prescription for who is in the specific role of bishop, priest, or deacon male or female, that there's a way in which God has ordained that in this particular moment in the midst of our week, it's useful to have a male, a man, as a symbol of Christ's exhortation, Christ's gift of himself in communion. And then in the midst of our whole common life together, the way each Christian, men and women, fully and equally shadow forth the mystery of what it means to be the church the body of Christ united to its head. And I think actually much of the sort of, if if you're attuned at all to sort of the conversation over the many last several decades about gender roles and the family and you know all the things that this sermon is on, I think often the conversation's got it backwards. Like tried to look at like, well, how is the home structured and that's how the church should be structured. I think the scripture would have us have it be the other way. From the mystery of the liturgies, we learn something about the mystery of gendered identity, male and female. And we take that into our homes and our relationships. But I think we begin with the cosmic implications of the liturgy. Because I think it's very hard to pin down just what is the difference between men and women. We're always reaching in our flesh for caricatures, for these shallow understandings. The mystery is very deep. That's what the scriptures would lead us into. Very deep and very hard to pin down. We actually need symbols 
and liturgies to even explain, like, well, it's kind of like this. And here, of course, as it intersects with even the wider conversation, which I, you know, occurs frequently these days in news and op-eds and things, um, about feminism in society. Feminism is exactly right in how it has called out, historically winked at, habits of particular male wickedness. It's exactly right when it says, ah, the way men carry themselves in this way or this way is actually assuming that men are better than women. That's my you know, chauvinism, so-called, rightly called. And so when feminism says, that's wicked, as Christians, we actually are given a gift to say, yeah, that is wicked. And many times in my own marriage, there have been conversations where the Holy Spirit has shone light of, oh, I'm actually talking to you in a way that reveals that I'm more important. Ugh. I repent and I'm sorry. And actually the sort of social movement of feminism has actually allowed more light to be shone on that. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for how it's blessed my marriage and relationships I, I know of as well. So feminism is exactly right in wicked, specifically male wickedness that it calls out. But I believe that it has got, the movement has um, gone wrong or gone too far in, in trying to efface all difference between men and women. And not all feminism tries to do that, but sometimes. That God, the Bible doesn't give us a sort of androgynous picture of humanity where male, female doesn't matter. The Bible says it matters, but in this mysterious way, right? Galatians says, in Christ there's neither male nor female, and yet here we have this specific liturgical role prescription in 1 Timothy 2. It does matter in a surprising way. God made us both together, men and women, in his image. But in order for his image to be fully manifest on earth, we needed not just males, but men and women. And that men and women together, and only together, in marriage, in society, in community, only together do men and women actually bring forth the full image of God on the earth. We need each other in life, in marriage, and in liturgy. So what I want to invite you to is as the church, which is the bride, which is a feminine image, we all participate in this deep, deep, like um, foundational image of, Christ, of the church, the bride. As the bride, let us receive 1 Timothy 2 in quietness with submission. As the church, they say we receive the scripture in quietness with submission. Amen.